Well, good morning. morning. It's good to see you today. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now uh, from an off-site campus or on the internet or uh, in the chapel or the warehouse. We're glad that you're along too. Tell you what we're going to do today. We're in a series called White Flag, and we're going to take a time out. We're going to push the pause button uh, from White Flag. We'll pick it up next week. And uh, we're going we're to kind of do a mini uh, peek at a celebration that we're going to do later in the year of a birthday that we just had. Are you sufficiently confused? <laughs> um, I know some of you who celebrate your birthday on the day of your birthday, the week of your birthday, and for the immediate month following. You know anybody like that? Well, here's what we're doing. We just recently had a significant um, a significant, a significant day. April the 3rd marked the 25th year anniversary of Seacoast Church. And uh, yeah, that's kind of exciting. And that was right in the whole Easter deal. And we knew that um, to do many celebrations there would take away from the celebration of, uh, of our Lord. And so what we decided to do is uh, we're going to push the celebration of 25 years to November. You say, well, why do you do that? Because we can, okay? Because we can. It's a, it's a time in the church. We're just going to have a huge month-long celebration. But what I want to do today is just uh, just let, give a peek. And, and here, here's what it, it's going to feel like. I remember when I was a kid, we'd go to Grandpa's house. And sometimes Grandpa would sit down on the couch, you know, and We'd sit down around him or maybe on his lap or on the floor. And we'd say, Grandpa, tell us when. Tell us about the time. You know, and he'd tell a story. We'd heard some of the stories many times before. Sometimes he'd pop a new story out or sometimes he would just embellish an old story. You know how that is. And what I want to do today is I'm going to sit down and invite you into our living room. Nobody's going to sit on my lap. Okay, that's just not happening. But uh, I'm going to tell you about the time. And we're going to reminisce a little bit about some of the defining moments, some of the highlights of the first 25 years. Okay? So that's kind of what we're going to do. And I'm asking uh, my son, Josh Surratt. Josh, if you would come up. Give him a hand as he comes up. And Josh is going to... Josh is going to help uh, to kind of tell the story. So let's cool. do it. Yeah. So what we're going to do is if you have an outline sheet, you can pull it out. Uh, you may get frustrated t- trying to fill in the blanks this weekend, but that's okay. Uh, we're going we're gonna to frame the, the message this weekend around the first five books of the Bible. Uh, if, if, if you kind of had to look at the story of Seacoast, we're just going to hang it around the first five books. And the first book is obviously Genesis. And when I think about the Genesis of Seacoast, the beginning. I know for me, I was about seven years old, and one of my first recollections of Seacoast was riding in the passenger seat of a moving truck uh, across the country from Illinois down to this strange land where they used words like y'all. Um, <laughs> people kind of, uh, it was just a different place, and so I didn't get it. And so I'm sure I asked you many times, and I'm sure that I was probably too young to fully understand why. Why are we doing this? Why Seacoast? Yeah, you, uh, you and your brother said, once we got down here, you said, we're never going to talk Southern. And as soon as we get our driver's license, we're going right back up to Illinois. Well, that didn't happen. 
They live all around us, and you guys keep reproducing. It's just like. <laughs> so why Seacoast? I grew up in a great church, but in our church, like a lot of other churches, we were focused almost entirely on the people inside the church. We talked about reaching the nations. We talked about the great revival that was going to come. But we were very insular, very much inside. I remember uh, just a few weeks ago, I spoke at a conference where one of the speakers was Bill Hybels, pastor at Willow Creek Church in the Chicago area. So Bill was getting ready to go up, and I kind of nudged him like this. I said, Bill, I, you need to know that 28 years ago, my wife and I just stumbled into Willow Creek. It's not because we were drunk or anything. We just didn't know <laughs> where it was, you know. And we went, and, uh, and we saw something there. We saw a church that was, that was helping believers grow, but it was very focused on those who were outside of the church. They just didn't just talk about it. But they did, and people were bringing their neighbors, their friends, and I said at that point, I want, to, I, I want to be a part of a church that really cares about the world, cares about the community that they live in, cares about their neighbors, cares about the world. Not that all churches don't, but I wanted to be specifically focused on that. And so that's kind of the motivating driver. That was the dream, to be a church that didn't just, you know, hang a, hang a shingle and say, we're a church and we do things better than everybody else, so come to our church. We never thought we did things better. We still don't. But we're passionate about reaching people outside of the church and helping them to become fully devoted followers of Christ. So that seems like a pretty reasonable vision. Uh, I'm sure everyone was fully on board or not. Uh, I know I wasn't. I had some resistance. Talk about some of the resistance that you experienced in kind of getting this thing going. Yeah, there was, there was a lot. Every time you've got a dream, you're going to have resistance. And um, I remember when Fred Richard, the pastor at Northwood Assembly, who was one of my heroes, called me while I was living in Illinois and said, why don't you come be on staff here and uh, then maybe at some point be a part of a vision that we have to plant churches. I got to tell you, just being on staff sounded good. Debbie and I had been senior pastors for about eight and a half years. We were exhausted. Absolutely. We didn't know the, or we didn't practice the principles of Sabbath at that point in our life, and we were burned out, worn out. We were hoping that maybe we could go on staff of a big church somewhere and just be there forever, and that obviously wasn't God's will. But, uh, but we're getting ready to move, and there were people in, in my family, not just you guys, but the extended family that said, that's crazy. I mean, why would you leave what God's blessing in Illinois to go, you know, South Carolina, first of all, to be on staff, and then to plant this, this church. I mean, it's not how you do church. And uh, so there, there was a lot of resistance. And then um, when we moved here, a lot of you guys know the story, so I won't tell the whole thing, but about three weeks after we moved, my mom and dad were visiting us here. We piled everybody into our van to go sightseeing, and we had a massive uh, traffic accident out on I-26. Uh, destroyed our vehicle, um, a semi-truck hit us from behind, destroyed about six or eight vehicles. And um, that one minute, everything's cool. The next minute, our entire life has changed. 
Uh, Jason, our oldest son, uh, has a um, fractured skull and is a in a coma for a couple of weeks. Jessica is somewhat seriously injured. And um, uh, I can remember Debbie and I one night just looking out a window on one of the top floors at Medical University uh, saying, you know, God, where are we? We don't know anybody here. Uh, we thought we were following you, and now it seems like our whole life is coming apart. And sometimes you can be there. Sometimes you can feel like you're following God and nothing's working, and it wasn't. And so that was a very discouraging moment. And I know as a kid, I was hoping that that would be God's way of telling us we got it wrong. We'd moved back to Illinois, but it didn't. I think in hindsight, looking back. Uh, you were always so spiritual. <clears throat> well, uh, you know. <laughs> just what I do. <laughs> but looking back on it, I think I can see that uh, it was probably God's way of just engrafting us into this community because of the, the team, you know, when you talk about the Genesis, building a team, the first pioneers probably started to sort of come alongside of us and help us before even getting to the point of planting a church. Talk about that team. They really did. Um, the elders in Illinois prayed over us that God would engraft us into the community didn't realize it would be an automobile accident that would do that. But the people that came and served us became, many of them became a part of the original team at Seacoast. I remember when Fred Richard uh, came to me and he said, okay, it's time. Uh, you need to start collecting a team and you can plant a church. The first person I called was Ron Hamilton, who uh, is our West Campus pastor now. His hair was not quite as uh, kind of white as it is now, and, but still the man. But uh, I, we, we sat down together. I, I invited him to Robert's Barbecue because how many of you know that you can hear God around Mustard Base <laughs> Carolina Barbecue? How many of you know that? That's where you can hear God. And so I said, Ron, I said, would you, guys, would you guys be interested if we started a new church and really being a, a leader in there? He said, you know what? That's what I'm created for. God had really birthed a vision in him. He just didn't know who or where or when. And so then we took Libby and my wife Debbie, uh, out to a little nicer place to uh, sell the ladies on it. And uh, we kind of took a napkin and kind of mapped out uh, what, what we saw as a vision for Seacoast. There were so many leaders that came around early on. Uh, Fred and Tracy Norris, who led worship, and Stephen Jan Radikoff and, um, and others. You, you remember uh, Sharon Wilson. Sharon Wilson. Uh, she was one of our first children's uh, workers alongside of Byron and Sue Smith. They led our children's ministry. And she... Uh, passed away uh, several years ago, but it was so cool because she had so much enthusiasm, uh, excitement around it. Everything was a party when Sharon was around, and uh, and I can remember she would be the one when you guys would go on a date night or you would go out of town, you'd leave us with Sharon, and what I think you didn't know is that she would tell us scary stories late into the night, and um, <laughs> I still have a nightmare every now and then uh, from yeah. some of the stories that she told. Well, thanks for sharing yeah, that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So before we leave Genesis, the first service uh, God in a cinema. Is that sort of how you envisioned it? No, no, no. Uh, like I said, I grew up in a church, shaped my values, great. But one of the challenges we had in my church is that we had, we had a long list of things that we were against. We weren't real sure what we were for, but we were real clear about that list. And one of the things in that list was going to movies. I never went to a movie as a kid. And so when I called my dad and told him we were starting our new church in a cinema, that was, uh, that was interesting. Um, but that was the only building that we could find. Uh, 
the movie theater here in Mount Pleasant. So then we had to figure out how do we invite people to come. So we did the world's most obnoxious marketing program. Uh, what we did is, is we got a phone book and we pulled out all the pages of people that live east of the Cooper here and we called 16,000 homes right at dinner time. Now, they don't do that anymore because we don't have landlines, right? I mean, most of us just have cell phones, but we, we called and, and, uh, we, and we asked two questions. We said, number one, um, do you attend church? And if they said, yeah, we said, great, keep going. And if they said no, we said, well, would you be interested in hearing uh, a, about a church? And, and we also said, uh, why do you think people don't go? That's what we asked first uh, before we said, are you interested? We said, why do you think people don't go? And, and uh, they gave us a laundry list of reasons. And we said, well, you know, it's going to be a new church, maybe a different kind of church. Would you be interested in coming? We invited them. We had no idea how many people would come. I remember that first Sunday, April the 3rd, the movie theater. Got there early, cleaned up all the gummy bears off the floor so the kids in what we called the nursery, which was the third cinema, would, uh, wouldn't eat them. And, and uh, <laughs> we, we wondered, would anybody come? I remember being up in the, the projection room, looking down into the auditorium, and right about 10 o'clock, a couple minutes before 10, we started, there were three people, three people in the auditorium. I didn't realize this was to be Seacoast where everybody comes, you know, right, right after it starts, but they did, and they, and they just, wow, it, it just filled up. In fact, it literally filled every seat in the theater. We had 340 people that first week. So we were off and running. That was the beginning. That's cool. I love this, the cinema years because, again, I was a kid. We would come through after church was over, and, you know, they had the chairs that flip back up. Uh, all of the adults' change would fall out of their pocket, and so we'd go get the quarters. Put them, uh, put them in the offering the next week? No, we would play video games in the lobby. And oh, so okay. I miss the, uh, miss the cinema years. But, but so 340 people yeah. uh, come in, uh, huge start. This is, the dream is coming to reality. Unfortunately, the second book of the Bible is Exodus, uh, the leaving, you know, the short goodbye, the sting of people leaving. Talk about... Uh, the, the next season, the, the Exodus? Well, uh, we've started since then a church planting organization called the ARC, the Association of Related Churches. And now we train all of our church planters that, man, you do the best job you can to invite people and get them there the first week, but you need to understand that most of them are not going to come back. I mean, you've got people that just come look, you know, like things new or maybe it doesn't fit. I didn't know that. I thought we don't want any training for church planting when I when we did it back then. And so I thought, wow, we had 340 people the first week. There's going to be a revival here. We're going to see 500 people. people lives are going to be changed. Soon there'll be 1,000. In fact, I called my best friend growing up, Terry Hilgers, and he had the, his dream job as a youth pastor in our home church. I said, Terry, you got to quit. You got to resign. You got to come out. Join me. I can't handle all these people. Well, we did have a revival. But it was a Gideon revival. Some of you know Gideon in the Old Testament. He started with a whole bunch of people and then they all left. Well, that's kind of the revival that we had. Every week, we had less people than the week before. In fact, the first three years, we had less people than we had the year before. And finally settled in at about 150 people. And it was really hard when leaders came in uh, and said, you know, this, this just isn't what we bargained for. This certainly isn't like the church that we came out of, and we thought it'd be more like that, and, 
or maybe we don't have things, you know, all together for our kids. We don't like the music. And the truth was, I didn't like the music. We weren't that good. You know, I mean, I was part of it. But you can't say that. You can't throw everybody under the bus. And uh, uh, it was just discouraging. It was just a real discouraging time. Hmm. Hmm. So, uh, in the Bible, Exodus was actually a good thing. They were brought out of uh, Egypt. And maybe for, it was a good thing for the people that were brought out of our church. I don't, <laughs> that might be it. I yeah. don't know. <clears throat> but the next book, as you read through the Bible, is Leviticus. And uh, for the sake of full disclosure, I typically skim Leviticus when I'm reading through the Bible. Uh, but, but I have spent some time getting to know Leviticus. And, and Leviticus is about becoming. It's, it's when the people of God sort of had to learn what it means to be the people of God and what it means to relate to each other. And it's a critical season of just figuring out who are we. Talk about the, the season of Leviticus. The Leviticus season where, where we established the values that would drive us and still drive us to this day. We wanted to find out what we were going to be when we grew up. I remember as a kid, I used to ask you what you wanted to be. I asked Jason, and I think you want to be a football player or something. I asked you, and you wanted to be a tree. That's right. Listen, anybody can be a football player. It takes vision. It takes faith to yeah. be a tree, the tree of life yeah. that would bring about. Your mother and I were worried about you. Uh, but <laughs> So what we did during that season is we asked this question, what does a fully devoted follower look like? Our whole goal was to help people who were far from God become fully devoted followers of Christ. So what does a fully devoted follower of Christ look like? And so what we did is we spent a couple of years really defining some values. And, and we landed on about five values that uh, we wanted to become. One was that we wanted to be people who worship God passionately. That was number one. In fact, that's number one on God's list, that you have no other, no other gods before you, that you worship God with your heart, soul, mind, body, strength. And uh, that's what we wanted to be. And we knew that individually, that meant seeking God with the first part of everything, first part of our day, the first part of our uh, schedule, the first part of our finances, first part of everything we wanted to worship God with. But also, there was a dimension of it uh, when we came together corporately that we would worship God with passion. And I think we did. And I think that that became a, um, that became a defining thing of what Seacoast was about. And I love it because worship has always been a value. It continues to be a value. Uh, and we've been led well in worship over the years with Fred Norris and uh, the Radikoffs and, you know, Martin Chalk, Tara Banks, all the campuses. Just it's always been a value, but it's always changed. Uh, you know, it's, it's just the value stays the same, but the style has changed. We, we worship a lot differently today than we did when we first started the church. And I think that's a good thing. Talk about one of the major transitions, though, of when, when we went from uh, a certain style of worship to another that came out of a dry spot in you? Yeah, um, a few years ago, um, I felt that our worship, my worship and our worship as a church was kind of getting to a, a dry place. Um, our liturgy, if you want to call it that, was very similar to other churches like ours where we'd have four or five songs that we sang uh, before the message, and then we'd have the message, and then we'd have one song at the end just kind of as an offering song and an out-the-door song. And, um, and there were some good times in that, but I felt like, boy, we had gotten stale and dry. And, and so I went on a, a six-month journey, really, of finding the presence and power of God, because that's always been a defining value. We want to walk in the presence and power of God. 
And uh, it took me several places. Let me just hit a couple of them. I, uh, I was doing some teaching for John Maxwell for leaders in other countries. And uh, they, they were having a, a leadership thing in Scotland. And one of the guys that was supposed to speak couldn't make it. So they called me last minute. Said, can you come to Scotland? I said, well, sure. And so I came and, and we taught some pastors there. And the guy I was with, who was a, kind of a distant friend of mine, he said, are you ready for an, an adventure now? We're in Scotland. I thought, sure, uh, as long as it doesn't involve skirts or face paint, you know, I, I, I'll do it. And uh, he said, no. So we went um, to the island of Iona, which is like at the end of the world. The island is significant because it's where Christianity came from uh, Ireland to Scotland and then throughout Europe back in the 5th century. Uh, there's a monastery there, not much else. Um, and it was a, just a rainy, rainy, uh, gale force winds, and you had to go across kind of this harbor in order to get there, and you had to go, it was, it's an island, and, and you had to go on a, a, a ferry boat, and uh, th there were about 10 people lined up that day to go with umbrellas and all this kind of thing, and, and uh, the ferry captain came and he, he said, I can get you there, but I don't know if I can get you back. And so eight people left, and that le left my adventure friend and me uh, to go. And so we, we got off, and we got there, and my friend went to the monastery to go in and look around. Before you got there, there's this graveyard that's beautiful, even in the rain, uh, that probably, I don't know, 50, 60 kings from Europe are buried there. And there's this little chapel, it's probably 15 by 20, 25, and it's been there forever, so it's just not really much of anything. And I, I just ducked in there to get out of the rain just a minute, and I wanted to look around the graveyard. And as I ducked in, there was a lady there, only person in the place, and she was kneeling down before this kind of just old crude uh, cross that somebody had made out of sticks, basically. And on the cross, there were some papers that were kind of pinned to the cross. And she was crying. And as I stepped in there, I experienced the presence and power of God. And so I just kind of tucked that away. And a little bit later, um, I was doing some teaching in India. And in order to get there, you had to go through, you know, one stop in Europe at that time. And I'd never been to Paris, France. And I thought, well, if I'm going to stop anywhere, why not stop in Paris? We'll get a cheap hotel. And see a couple of sites and then go on to India. So uh, a friend of, I, uh, of mine uh, and I did that, and, and we went to the Notre Dame Cathedral, which is this beautiful place, but it's a museum. You know, the Spirit of God has departed from that place a long time ago. And, um, but we were in there, and I saw some people who were over kind of in an alcove, and they were kind of crying a little bit. I, I went over there, and they were lighting candles. And in that moment, I experienced the presence and power of Jesus. I didn't understand it. Went to several other, other places. And, and uh, later that year, about the fourth week before Father's Day, we had had our normal thing, you know, some worship and uh, teaching I had taught. And then I'm sitting back in the sound booth, and there's the one song to, for the offering to go home. And I felt the presence of God. It was just, God was saying, okay, it's time. And I thought, well, time for what? You know, go home, I know, but what's it time for? It's, it's time to do what I've shown you. 
So that week I began to seek God. What does that mean? And he gave me Isaiah 29, which basically says about Israel. He said, you know, you're wor you worship me with your lips and your mouth, but your heart is far from me. And he says that your worship is about the laws of man. And he goes on and he says that he would like to astound them. And I took it as us, astound us with his presence. And so, so I, I don't know what to do. I, I built a little cross. We built crosses that week. We, we uh, scrambled around to see if we could get communion because I felt like he was telling us that we were to do that every week. Uh, we asked prayer teams and elders to anoint people with oil and pray. Um, we got some candles. I remember when one of my friends said, what, are we going Catholic? And I said, uh, no, we're just not going to ignore the first 1,600 years of, of, of the church. And I had studied a little bit about what that was all about. And, um, and so the next week I got up, and I, we didn't have all the elements at that point. I got up and I said, everything changes in three weeks. Father's Day, everything changes. So we had a huge crowd, Father's Day. What's going on, you know? If you want to have a big crowd, have a fire. And uh, we, we just had a big crowd. And that day I explained the journey that I'd been on, and I said, we're going we're gonna to change our, our worship. I know, you know we come in, and a lot of you come in late because you want to hear the message miss the worship, and that wasn't the only reason for it, but here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to do most of our worship at the end of the message in order to respond to God, and we're going to respond in various ways. Well, I tell you what, that weekend, one of the most powerful weekends we've ever had, but it didn't stop there. Time after time after time, as we've begun to respond to God, we have experienced the presence and power of God. Many of you have, and you will today. I know uh, there was one uh, uh, time in, in Debbie and I's life when one of our children were struggling with infertility. And Debbie and I didn't tell anybody. But we would go and we'd light, light candles together every week and just pray that the, that the light and the life of Jesus would just be manifest in this situation. And um, wow, we, we could talk about that for a long time. But that uh, transformed kind of how we do Worship. That's cool. So worship's a value. Another value that we have as a church that you guys wrestled with early on is, is that we're going to be radical about community. Uh, we're going to do this together. You know, the Bible, when, when God made the world, everything was good until he made man. And he said, it's not good for man to be alone. He saw that there was, there was a need that we would live life together, that we would do life in community with other people. And so we've done that over the years. We've seen uh, just, we, we've become a church of small groups that gather on the weekend. And so if you're if you're doing life alone, if you're viewing Christianity as kind of a solo sport, a faith that you live out on your own, you're not, you're not experiencing the full breadth of what God's doing at Seacoast because we, we do life in community. Another value is growth. You know, mm -hmm. uh, we, we pride ourselves on uh, reaching people who may be far from God, but we want to see people grow up into maturity. Talk about what growth sure, looks like Sure, God at loves you just the way that you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay there. And so growth is normal. I mean... And we make it complicated. How do you grow? Well, you got to read this. You got to do this. You got to, you know, just look around. How do kids grow? How do kids grow? And um, we've got firsthand experience of that. Yes, we do. We have lots of grandkids. And, and um, last week, uh, my daughter said, would you mind feeding, you know, little Judah? Sure. I love it. He's about this big. He can't feed himself. And so. I think that was Breck. Breck. That wouldn't be Judah. Judah's yeah. a little bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah, they, all, they all run together a little bit. But um, <laughs> so is Breck. Like I said, it was Breck. And 
so I'm, I'm giving Breck a bottle, and I'm just really digging it, you know, enjoying it. But then I, I have this, this image of, you know, when he gets old enough to where you got to part the face hair in order to get the bottle in, that's just not good. That's not good. The goal is to teach them to eat for themselves. You give them a fork, it's messy at first, they don't get things right, but ultimately they all figure it out. They all figure it out. And that's kind of the model we have at Seacoast, and that's self-feeding. You know, that we, we help at first, and then we provide uh, avenues of food, and you feed yourself. We haven't heard this so much lately, but I, I remember in some of the earlier years, people would come and say, I just can't get fed here. And I don't say what I'm thinking a lot of times, but I'm thinking, you know, you're 40 years old, you really ought to be feeding yourself. And that's kind of how, how it is. There's so much resource. So anyway, I'll just leave that alone. Yeah, so growth, though. And, and people off. what know. I love is the mark of maturity at Seacoast is not how much you know, but who you love. Uh, and, and, and it's expressed as you grow, you, you start to love people. And that kind of flows into a fourth value, you know, worship, connecting, and community, growing in our faith, and also serving. You know, we ought to be people that are becoming more and more selfless as we grow more and more into the image of Christ. And so talk about serving at Seacoast. Well, early on, Acts chapter 2 and um, the end of the chapter and then Acts chapter 4, the end of the chapter, were the verses that just fired me up about being a church where they had everything in common. They served together and nobody had a need. They served the needs of the church. You know, oftentimes in church, um, the church looks like a football stadium where you've got 22 uh, people who are in desperate need of rest being cheered on by 50,000 people who are in desperate need of exercise. You know, that's not how the church should be. Our vision was a church where everybody serves. Now, it's not happening yet. And it ticks me off, to be honest with you. And I'm just going to back off because this is a nice weekend. But we all serve. We serve in the church. We serve in the community. And we serve in the world. That's what we're to do. We are created to serve. Now, there's a lot of good stories on, on how that's happening, people who are serving in the church and making a major difference in the community. I remember, uh, I remember one year we, we uh, did a 40 days of community thing where we said, uh, we, 500 small groups, you all figure out how you're going to serve in the community and do creative things. And I remember seeing in the newspaper uh, one week that Seacoast Church had built a house for somebody. And I remember bringing that newspaper into the office and saying, I didn't hear about this. Did you hear about this? Nobody, none of our leaders knew a thing about it. We finally researched it and found out a small group decided, hey, this somebody needs service, let's do it. That was the church being the church. It wasn't stimulated from just leadership, hey, this is how you do it. In fact, we've kind of trans transitioned over the last few years from we can do it, you can help, to you can do it, we'll help you uh, figure it out. And I love that about our church. I, I love that we're transforming communities and serving in the community. That's awesome. That's cool. One more, one more value, um, and I know there are probably a lot of them, but it's, it's that we would share our faith, that we would live our lives on mission. Uh, you know, when we experience the love of Christ and we experience the grace of Christ, it's not something that we keep a secret. When we've really been changed, uh, th then we begin to, to bring other people into it, to tell people about our faith, to bring them to church. Talk about kind of the moment where that really became clear for you. Yeah, for me, um, it was several years ago, and I was reading a story about the Titanic. Now, this is before the movie came out. This is actually before our women's conference. 
Some of you were there. Um, this, I was reading a book about the Titanic. You know, it's when it hit an iceberg, and you guys know the story. Well, there was a, a town, you know, that was somewhat close to where all of that happened, where they were bringing the survivors and the bodies. And there were lists. This is before the Internet, and so how do you find out what's what? There were two lists that were posted. On one list were those who were saved, and the other was those who were lost. It made a major impact on me. I thought that's what our life is about. You know what? We live in the everyday, but there is coming a time where we're all going to die. We're going to move into eternity, and there are going to be those who were saved who will have an eternity with God, and those who were lost who will not. And that motivates me. That, that, that will always drive a part of what we do here at Seacoast. What we want to do is we want to we make sure there's as many people as possible on that list mm-hmm. that are saved. That's cool. That's cool. And, and it sounds like eventually the people in the church began to, to take hold of that mission, began to invite friends and, and see people's lives be changed. And, and we, we get past Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and we finally get into the numbers. Probably felt like it took forever to get there. But the church begins to grow. Uh, talk about that season where, where you began to see the church grow. Yeah, we, I, I felt like we were like the Israelites traveling, traveling through the desert. We camped in different places. Uh, we had several different uh, facilities where we worshiped at. I thought it would be kind of fun to see where did you first start coming to Seacoast? How many of you first started in the movie theater that now is a Volkswagen dealership? Anybody here? Is there anybody in this service? There's a couple hands. A couple of hands. most of them have left. Most of them have left. No, they go to the Saturday night service. That's right. Okay. All right. They do. Lots of them do. Okay. How many of you uh, remember even the first, uh, there, there won't be anybody. You came on the first, first Wednesday that was at the Snee Farm Country Club that I led with a guitar and a drum machine. Anybody here? Now, right. those people did leave after yeah. that night. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's go on. How many, of you, how many of you came when we were in a dance studio uh, that had, it was about 25 feet wide, about 40 feet long, but it had mirrors, so it looked like there were twice as many of us. How many of you, how many, anybody here come to the dance studio? Nobody. Well, this is interesting. Okay. How many of you started coming in the first little building that we built that was right over here, had about 135 people, it became a multi-purpose room, and then we ulti- ultimately tore it down uh, to build uh, uh, children's facilities. Anybody start coming in that little, okay, there's a few back there over here. Okay, all right. Um, okay, I don't even know if I want to admit this one. All right, so this was my idea, and I was the only one that thought it was a good idea. Um, only one that still thinks it was a good idea. Okay, all right. We moved out to the Omar Shrine Temple that we affectionately call the Temple of Doom. We were there for about six months. <laughs> How many of you started coming there? Byron and Jane, I see. Oh, there's several. All right. So uh, now, then we moved here. How many of you remember when this was half of this building? It, the, it was right here. These windows were over here, and we were there. How many of you were here then? Okay, quite a few. And then the rest of you, I assume, started coming now, or you haven't come yet. Okay. All right. So, so, uh, so somewhere along the line, after five years... We said, oh, let's go back even before the five years. In about 1991, we decided to clear some land. We were going to build our first building here on this land. We had a groundbreaking. Now, um, you're going to see a video of that. 
here's what I saw this week as I looked at it. There were 80 chairs set up. Okay, get that picture. 80 chairs. There were between 125 and 150 people there. And, uh, and uh, that's probably good enough. That this, this was at, the first part of it that introduces it was actually done in 1991. I don't want you laughing. You used to look funny too. Okay? All right, here we go. I remember the, the groundbreaking service. That was an exciting time. We, we drew out on the, on the land. We, 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 we drew out with, with uh, chalk that you, you chalk a football field with. We drew out what the building would look like. And then we set up a stage where the stage would be and some chairs. And, and, uh, and we had an outdoor service. And, uh, and that was neat. That, that was a, a highlight of of our experience at Seacoast. We're going to use this ground to God's gl glory to build a church. And I want to tell you something. I feel it and I sense it that when we are long gone, there will be tens of thousands of people who will come to this piece of ground and God's going to change their life because people like you had a vision to do this thing. I'm excited about it. That's cool. <laughs> Now, I don't know if it's bad burritos or God, but God has brought tens of thousands of people uh, here uh, since that time. And then a couple years later, you went out to the beach and, and kind of uh, had a day at the beach and, and asked God, how many should we believe God for? Yeah, now we're five years into it. Five years into it, we've got the same number of people as we had that first Sunday. We've finally grown back to about 350 people. And I'm thinking, how in the world are we going to handle all these people. Got to understand, I was from a small church. And uh, so I went to the beach, and uh, this is 1993, five years in, and I took a Bible and a notepad and a Diet Coke, and I said, God, I prayed a prayer that I've prayed many times. I said, God, if your will, if nothing were impossible, and your will was being done perfectly on earth, at seacoast, as it was being done in heaven, what would that look like? And I just began to write what it might possibly look like. And one of the things that I did was land on a number of people that we could maybe expect to see over the next seven years until the year 2000. And the number I got was 2,000 people, which was impossible, absolutely impossible. Taking us five years to grow back to 350, 2,000 people, well, it happened. And by the year 2000, uh, we, we, uh, we were doing five services and there were 2,000 people coming. And then 2001 was the year that rocked our world, obviously, our nation. But it was also a year that rocked our church because we were doing five services. We're reaching uh, probably over 2,000 people at that point. And the natural solution was we need to bu build a bigger building. Yep. And so we went to the city and planned to build a bigger building. And it didn't quite turn out how we thought it would. Uh, not exactly. So, so... It came, we thought everything was great, came down to the last meeting where they were going to give us approval to build a bigger building. And uh, they said no. Not only did they say no, but they zoned our land that we had just bought where we couldn't build a bigger building on it. And you talk about a defeat. I felt terrible. I mean, I, I did what I, I did at the time I, when I felt bad about something. I went back to my office, locked the doors, turned off the lights, closed the curtains, and turned on some country music. Because country music, they always lose something, you know, a dog, a truck, a girlfriend. And I felt like we had lost. We had, what an embarrassment. We'd spent money on land, and now we can't. I mean, it's just, just a defeat. Now, 
little did I know at the time. Well, let me just say this. So in the midst of my pity party, I began to sense that God was in this. You know, it, it was a surprise to me. That meeting was a total surprise to me. But it wasn't a surprise to God. It's real hard to surprise an omniscient God. How many of you know that? And uh, so if he's not surprised, he's at work on the solution before we even knew there was a problem, which has become something that I've lived with. He's at work, regardless of what happens. And uh, so his solution for us was multi-site. We planted our first site um, next door in the annex, and then we planted one in Columbia, and then we planted the, the West Campus and the Dream Center in Somerville, and on and on and on. D- now 12 campuses. And here's what's interesting is that moment that I thought was our biggest failure arguably has become the biggest blessing that we could be to the body of Christ. Mm. All over the world, churches do multi-site now. Um, and uh, we started a church planting organization in 2001 at the same time. So that little video, 125, 150 people, someday, tens of thousands. You, you know what? Today, there will be 12,000 people that worship at Seacoast in 12 campuses. There will be a, approximately... Um, a quarter of a million people that will worship in ark churches that have been planted and joined during that time. There will be well over a thousand people who will come to Christ today. Um, and there, this year there will be over $11 million that will be given to missions um, around the world that grew out of that little vision. God is able to do abundantly more than all we could ever ask Mm. or imagine. That's awesome. So the last book, Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy is a book of transition uh, Mm -hmm. where God made some transitions. And in the 25-year history at Seacoast, there have been many transitions, uh, good and bad and uh, tough ones and easier ones. Talk about the day that you're your leadership team died, and, and what you've learned maybe out of Deuteronomy as it relates to transition. Yeah, um, wow, that was, uh, th- there's, a, there's a picture uh, in Deuteronomy, the last chapter, 34, that's incredible. It's uh, God taking Moses up on top of a mountain. Moses has led well. He'd led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he'd led them on those, that 40-year journey in he had faith, and God takes him up on a mountain just as they're getting ready to cross the Jordan into the promised land. And he says this, this is the land that I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have now allowed you to see it with your own eyes, but you will not enter the land. Moses had led well. He had been faithful, but now God said, it's time for another generation. It's time for the next generation, for Joshua uh, and uh, the leaders, Caleb, to, to lead. Um, we had about three or four years ago what I and probably everybody else in America and around the world thought was an absolute world-class team of leaders here. Our leadership team, those that led us, led us so well. Um, people like Jeff Surratt, my brother, who is the foremost expert on multi-site around the world, written books, and, and Mac Lake, who, a leadership guru, and Byron Davis, who is uh, with us today, 
led our operations through that entire time uh, uh, as a volunteer, uh, but working every day. And, um, and then some other guys who just were strong, strong leaders who at all about the same time felt a call of God to the next season of their life. Um, and it was God. There was no backstory. Jeff went to um, Saddleback to be a part of what Rick was doing out there and Mac uh, in creating a world uh, movement. And uh, Mac Lake went to further kind of the church planting mission. And, um, and, and Byron said, I'll serve the church, but it'll be in another capacity rather than being full-time doing this. And, and it was about that time that Martin Chalk had his exodus to Ireland and, and various ones. I mean, there were several that Sean Wood and several others. And, and I remember that uh, the night that Jeff uh, and Sherry left, we had a, a last supper together. And um, we left and I took Debbie to do whatever we were doing. And I, I was parking my car in a parking lot. And as I parked it, I suddenly began to cry. And I'm not a real weepy guy. But I started, I, I literally heaved, uh, sobbing in that parking lot. And it seemed like forever. It was probably just a few minutes. And at the end, I, I, I tried to process it with God. God, where, what was that and why? And, and I could see that in my core, I was lonely. These are men and women who had walked this journey for a long time with me. And now it seems like they're all, for whatever reason, going different directions. And, and I felt afraid. Um, can we do this? Is this it? You know, where, where do we go from here? So at night I went home and I dried my tears and crafted an email. And I, I called some young Joshua's and Jason's over to my house. And so if Josh Walters and Jason Surratt, if you guys would come up here, let's talk just a minute about that meeting. I uh, sent an email and I said, I want you guys on my back porch tomorrow morning pronto. Do you remember that meeting? Oh, yeah. I think so. <laughs> do you remember how you felt when you got the call? I do. My, my initial thought was, man, I've really enjoyed working here. <laughs> so, I, was, I, was in a, I was in line at Starbucks, you know, scrolling through email. I was like, oh, my gosh. And stepped out of line and called my wife and said, babe, I need you to be praying. I wasn't going without some backup. So, uh Head it over. <laughs> you remember? I do remember. Yeah, obviously uh, we've had a lot of family meals and, and meetings on the back porch, but never one like impromptu in the middle of the day during work. And so I knew something significant was going to happen. Yeah, I, when there weren't hamburgers or a football game on, I realized that there was something up. I was trying to scroll back through, what have I done wrong uh, <laughs> that I need to just come clean on? And I couldn't think of anything. So I knew something was up, though. Well, uh, you remember I, I laid out for you what had happened, that seems like over the last year, year and a half, that this world-class leadership team is now gone, and you guys are about all I've got left. And, uh, <laughs> and, so, and so I said, uh, I said, I'm going to challenge you with two things. Remember that? One, are you here? Is anybody leaving? No. You're not, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> And uh, secondly, okay, if you're not leaving, uh, you're going to have to lead, and you got to take your game to a whole nother level. Remember that? Yeah. It kind of felt to me like a coach uh, that had graduated a bunch of seniors and was looking at the freshmen saying, hey, it's time to get in the game. It's time to play. And I can remember feeling excited 
uh, on one hand because I felt like I was wired to, to make a difference and to be a part. And so it was like, here's the time for us to step up. But I was also afraid because I didn't want to be the guy to miss the shot at the end of the game. You know, I didn't want to be the guy to make the big turnover. And so it was a combination of, of excitement, but also just fear. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. I, I think I was feeling the weight of the moment for you, being that most of those guys had been here, you know, to see and be a part of all God had done here at Seacoast for a long time. And really, for me as a young leader, I felt like I could do anything with them in my corner, you know, being able to go to Mac or go to Jeff. And so I was excited on one hand, but the other hand was like, terror, you know, so yeah. I remember telling myself, do not let him see that you're scared, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I saw. I saw, I, I, I kind of sensed that you guys were, you know, yeah, it's sad they have to go, but it's great nobody had to die for us to be able to <laughs> step up and be able to, to lead. And, uh, and so, and so, so let me ask you this, as we, this is it, this is where we close. Um, how do you feel about the future? Well, uh, obviously, the last 25 years have been an incredible um, season of ministry here at Seacoast, and, uh, but I really feel like the best is still yet to come. Uh, the foundation that's been laid, I think, is going to be a catalyst for uh, great things in the future as we continue to um, plant churches and do missions all over the world. Mm-hmm. I agree, man. I think about Easter last year, your vision was, and we were praying as a staff and as a body to see a 1,000 people make decisions to follow Christ, and we had those canvases out, and to see it finished, a thousand people who had made decisions to follow Christ. You think about over the last 25 years, uh, the thousands of, of people who have come to him whose stories have forever been changed. We have campus pastors that have accepted Christ here at our church and now serve in ministry and campuses all over the state, and churches we've had a hand in planning all around our country. People that, I got an email this week from a guy in Poland that was watching a service of ours that saw a video of a healing that asked if he could Skype in with us to have somebody pray over him, uh, to just see the impact we're having all over the world, all of which started uh, through you responding in obedience, you know, in faith to what you felt like God had called you to. I just can't help but wonder uh, how much more could God want to do through mm-hmm. an army of people that are all willing to grab hold of that vision and, and go all in. So it's cool. That's cool. See, I, I could see it going one of two directions. I think I know where it's going to go, and I'm excited about it. But as you talked about and described the cathedral at Notre Dame and how it's become a museum. And I think that there is going to be a temptation to go, you know what? God did some cool stuff here. Let's celebrate that. Let's relive the past. Let's, let, let's, let's keep, keep, keep celebrating that. And I want to celebrate it, but where we would, we would cease living the life that God has in front of us and we would begin to turn into a museum about the, the and, and we talk more about what God did yesterday than what he's going to do in the future. But, but I don't think that's going to happen because as I look out and I see uh, the people here and at all of our campuses, I think back to the team that started this thing. There were probably about 13 people in, in your living room. And you guys were crazy enough to think that if, if, if the 13 of us were willing to put everything in the middle and say, we're, we're all in here, we're gonna sell out to this vision, God might just use us to transform this city. And, and, and with the faith of about 13 people, he's done that. He's transformed not only this city, but the communities that we have campuses in. We've begun to see a little bit of, of world influence but I look out and I see the army as you described, and, and I see people's faces, and, and I, I think, man, if, if we all decided we're not gonna turn this into a museum, we're gonna sell out, we're gonna piggyback on that same faith that believes that if we just all went all in, if we all said whatever it takes to build God's kingdom where we are, I believe that God will do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. You never could have dreamed that there would be tens of thousands of people, and, and, and there were moments of faith where we saw it on the video. But I can't help but wonder what God might want to do. And I don't have a number on it. But I think that if we all were willing to go all in and say, man, 
whatever it takes, we're going to live this adventure that God's got us on. We might see the entire world change. And, and I'm all in, and I don't know about you guys, if you get excited about being a part of something like that, but I say let's do it and see what happens. Wow. You guys are exciting, and you're excited. I'm excited about the future. I hope you'll let an old guy like me just kind of <laughs> cheer you on a little bit. We don't want you going anywhere, that's for sure. So, every dream comes with resistance. I'll just give you the, some of you would die if you didn't get to fill in the blanks. Mountaintops are cool places to celebrate. Lasting fruit is produced in the valley. And at any point in the journey, God has a purpose and God has a next. You know, in those first 10 years, it seemed like our purpose was to build a church, but there was a next. It seems like in the next 10 years, God's purpose was to continue building the church, but it was to build community. And then there was a next. In the last few years, it seems like we've been building a church, uh, building community, and influencing the world. But there's a next. So what's next? We'll tell you in November. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your kingdom that you build and that you plant your dreams and visions in all of us so that your kingdom can come on earth and that your will can be done as it's done in heaven. God, now I pray that you would spark us to response to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.